Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, Mike here, and welcome to another episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about a bit of a different subject. Normally, we talk a lot about mixing and everything that goes into that, but once you're done a mix, you need to get your song mastered. And when it comes to the topic of mastering, there's a lot of mystery surrounding it. A lot of people are curious about, you know, what does it involve, and do you need to get your songs mastered, and how is it going to transform your music, or how do you prepare your music for mastering? So for this week's episode, I've decided to invite Noah Mintz. He is the senior engineer and owner of Lacquer Channel Mastering, and Lacquer Channel is responsible for mastering artists such as Billy Talent, The National, The Birthday Massacre, The Sheepdogs, and a whole bunch more. And in this chat, Noah gives us a lot of insight behind the entire mastering process, what goes into it, what to expect, how to prepare your tracks for mastering, and he also shares some really great advice on the importance of preserving dynamic range in your tracks. As he puts it, headroom's totally not important, dynamic range is important. And I think that that's something that a lot of people overlook or forget about. So let's not waste any more time, let's just jump right into the interview because I know that you're going to learn a ton from it. Thanks for being on the podcast, Noah. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here. So for people who might not be familiar with who you are, what you do, can you give us a little bit of your background on how you got into mastering? Sure. Uh, so I'm Noah Mintz. I'm the owner and senior mastering engineer at Lacquer Channel Mastering. Lacquer Channel has been around since 1974. It has its roots in both in uh, Scarborough in Phase 1 and um, in Yorkville, Um with um, Jack Richardson's and Bob Ezrin's studio where George Graves got his start in Canada. And then he moved over to Paul Gross's studio, it's unnamed, at, over at Phase One. And then we we moved here uh, in 1989. And uh, so I was in a band in the 90s and I kind of quit around 97 and decided what I wanted to do. And, and I was already doing sort of home mastering at the time, which is really the first time you could ever do home mastering. And uh, given uh, the technology, so plugins were just coming out and uh, there was a TC Electronics finalizer. And uh, so I was able to do mastering at home, I actually built a mastering studio at home. And then after a year, I built another mastering studio at a, a warehouse. Um, did that for a couple years and then uh, went to Lacquer Channel since uh, 2001. Uh, and became half owner around 2005 and became full owner around 2012. Awesome. Most people who get into audio engineering end up wanting to be either recording or mixing engineers or producers. So what made you get into mastering then? Yeah, mastering is a weird kind of calling. Um, uh, most of the mastering engineers I know um, do it because it was the part of the engineering process they liked the most. Um, uh, for me, being in a band, I... Uh, I, I work with a lot of other bands and I decided if I wanted to get an audio engineering, I didn't really want to work with bands too much. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so mastering seemed like the, the best thing. Cause there's one day, uh, you have limited, limited exposure to the, the members of the band or the producers and, um, and you get paid pretty well, at least at that time you did <laughs> <laughs> not so much anymore. Um, but you generally spend about $5,000 for a mastering se session back in the late 90s. So 
uh, it seemed like an ideal thing to get into. And I really was super into the technology of it. Um, like I said, it was, uh, kind of the, the forefront of, um, mastering it, be able to be done in a home level. And, uh, the technology was rapidly developing at that time. And, uh, so I was super interested in that and I like the sort of the boring aspect of it and cause it's not very exciting like, uh, mixing is. Yep. Um, but mastering guys tend to be very like into mastering stuff. Like they're into like mastering gear and, um, the signal paths and all that kind of stuff. We're not into sort of like the vibey sort of thing that recording people are into. We're into more like, like, like what makes this like one or 2% colored as opposed to like, you know, like something that's super tubey or valvey or like, uh, or transformery. We're like, okay, is this a tiny little bit? Like we're just, we're sort of into the technology of it more than maybe the, um, uh, the recording guys are. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. So how did you learn to master then? Did you go to school or do an internship or any of that? No. So the, again, this was sort of the early days of the internet. So I learned from some of the, the greats on the internet just by asking them questions. It was, you know, everyone was just getting an email address at that point. So I was able to like directly respond to like people like Bob Olson and Glenn Meadows and, um, and even like George Massenberg and like, all these people who are either mastery engineers or clients of mastering. And, uh, I learned a lot very quickly at that time. So, cause you just had access to not just information, but a lot of knowledge. Now it's a little different. Now you have so much information out there and so much of it is, is basically misinformation. It's telling you how to master and it's not really, you know, not that I'm wanting to say what is the way to master or not, but I think there's masterings and effort and minimalism. And I don't think a lot of the, uh, uh, tutorials online really teach you that. Um, and when you got programs like ozone coming out with, you know, 15 different processes for mastering, um, really all you need is an EQ and compressor. You don't really need anything else for mastering. So the eight different eight to like 16 different processes of, of mastering spatial and stuff like that is just really kind of unnecessary and only really need to be used on a, on a, on a limited basis. So I was able to learn like really how to, like I just, how to set a compressor, how to set an EQ, and I can just sort of take off from there. That's awesome. And then when I came to Lacquer Channel, I had Phil and George here to, to really show me some other things So, and bounce ideas off of. And with Phil, Phil and I, we've been able to bounce ideas off each other for the past almost 20 years. So That helps. It's always yeah. good to have other people you can bounce ideas off of for sure. You, you got it. So tell me a little bit about the studio setup you've got. What kind of gear are you using these days? Oh man, uh, we've got some of the best gear in the world. I'm so lucky to be able to have this. So when I came into the studio here, we had Neve mastering consoles, Sontech EQ, Pultec EQs. We had some pretty awesome stuff. Their digital technology left a lot to be desired. So I came in and upgraded their digital technology. And, um, and over the years we sold off some things. I made a lot of mistakes. Um, the Pultec EQs, as awesome as they were, their original Pultex, they were different every day. So I was kind of like, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to get rid of these things. And I got rid of it and bought a YCQ and a, a, a Maslik Prism compressor. I don't have either of those anymore, and I regret selling the Pultex. I should have I just got them worked on. Luckily, I kept the Neve and I kept the Sontech. Um, so we got rid of the Neve console. I, I don't really regret that, although it'd been kind of cool to have, but I don't regret it. Um, I would have had to buy it off the owner, mm-hmm. um, but we kept the Nevi Q. So I've got the Nevi Q. Um, so I've got the Nevi Q. I've got the Sontech EQ. I've got my original GML EQ, which is like 
one of the best mastering EQs in the world. I have a uh, the prototype of the Dangerous Backs. It's made by Muth. Cool. Um, I have an SBL Passive EQ, which is amazing. Um, I have a Weiss compressor, a Manly compressor, a um, Titan, the Crane Song or uh, David Hill Crane Song compressor. Um, my consoles are uh, Crookwood and Dangerous. Um, I have a, I don't really use it, but I've got an original ITI EQ, which is the, the father of the Sontech and the GML. Very cool. Which is real neat, yeah. Sounds like a lot of analog gear in there. A ton of analog gear. And we got like great, amazing converters by DCS and Burl and Dangerous and um, and uh, and we have Ampex tape machine. Like it's just, we got a whole complement of things here. It's pretty, it's pretty great being in the studio to have this access to this kind of equipment. That's awesome. So do you think that there's still, obviously it sounds like you, you think this, but do you think that there's still a need for analog gear in mastering when so much of the industry is shifting to digital? Um, I'll be frank with you. The, the industry is switching to di- digital out of convenience. Anyone who says otherwise is lying. And, I, and, I, and I'm straight up about that. It's like um, analog is more cumbersome. Analog is a lot more work. Analog doesn't always sound better. Um, but when it does sound better, it sounds a lot better. So I still ma- I do master a lot of things all di- digital, all plugins, only because it sounds better, um, or if the or if the budget demands it. Um, but um, even my mixing pals, you know, it's like they're like they've got a whole complement of analog gear, and they're just like I'm not using it. It's mm-hmm. like the amount of revisions these days, the amount of work required. It's just to recall an analog. It's just it's too much time, but so people are using digital out of convenience and because digital sounds good enough. Yeah. Um, like, I can't stress that enough. Digital does sound really good. Like, but a UAD Poltec, as great as it sounds, it doesn't sound better than the actual piece of gear. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds different. It sounds close. But it doesn't sound better. Um, given the program material, if you've got something overcompressed or loud or, or whatever, the UID would be better for that. Um, but if you got something really, really well recorded, um, and can use the sound of a Pultec, a real Pultec is always going to sound better. A real Neve is always going to sound better, but, um, not always better enough to warrant using it. So it all depends on the program material, but if people are all did all did did digital, it's because of workflow or, or of uh, or because of uh, of time, not because it sounds better. Mm-hmm. So you did mention that you sometimes will go to digital. How do you yep. decide when you're going to do that? Like, wh- at what point are you like, my gear is no good compared to a plugin? First song, first song, I always do an analog pass and a d- digital pass or a hybrid pass, and decide which is going to be better. The first song always takes three to four times more than the rest of the album, and you just. You just decide, and, and even if all the songs are different, you just pick the vibe for the album. What's going to sound better? Are plugins going to sound better? Or like, and I'm not biased to one another. Not like, oh, I'm not going to use analog um, or today, or not going to use plugins today. I'm just like, whatever sounds best for the project. You know, it depends where it's recorded and mixed. It's like sometimes cleanest plugins available work best for it. Sometimes just an EQ plugin and nothing else works best for it. It takes me a, long to do that, but it's like because it's longer to do less. Um, 
uh, because like, you know, you have to be confident enough and, and decide, make the decision and go through all the other paces to decide that nothing is the best thing to do here. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's just experimenting with that first song and, and, and it might, at first song, maybe multiple songs. You might run multiple songs through it to decide it, but you're not committing anything. Once you decide to commit, it's like, well, it's going to be plugins. It's going to be analog. It's going to be, um, a hybrid. Yeah, that's cool. So before we dive into a lot of the questions that are specific to the mastering process, uh, let's just take a step back for a second. I know I know there's a lot of people who think that if they know how to use an EQ or compressors or limiters and that kind of stuff, that they think that they essentially know a lot of the same equipment as mastering engineers. So yep. if they're able to get their mixes to a point where they're happy with the quality of them, what's the argument for getting your songs mastered by a professional? I'll go back right down to my first year mastering. I emailed George Massenberg. Um, who's a world famous recording engineer and professor at McGill um, and designer of, of some of the best gear in the world. And I asked him that very, very similar question. I actually asked him if there was one piece of advice you'd give to a mastering engineer, what would it be? And he goes, I pay my mastering engineer a lot of money to tell me I've done a good job. Hmm. Um, so mastering, look, it comes down to this. Like a lot of people say, Hey, I'm, I, I, my mix is great. I don't really need mastering. And I'm like, okay, well go to every single album you love. Like no matter when it was recorded, every single album you love. And is there a mastering credit? And, and the answer is always yes. Um, the best engineering engineer engineers in the world use mastering engineers. So what do you know that they don't like, like, why are you, what makes you so confident and arrogant to think that your mix is perfect? It doesn't need mastering at all. And these other guys who are, who are doing the Rolling Stones and have done the Beatles and have done like, like, like the best bands of all time. And they still feel they need mastering. That's a very so, good argument. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's like, like I said, if I can do nothing to your album, that's the best thing possible, but it's going to take me more time to decide to do nothing than it would decide to do not something. If I listen to the album and I know exactly what I need to do, it'll take me four hours to do the whole album. If I listen to the album and have no idea what to do, it's going to take me eight hours to do the album. <laughs> so, um, and whether it's just, it's just a, a, a third ear that's just, that's just telling you everything's great or, or maybe fixing some phase problems or, or just tightening up the low end or anything, something, making it louder and making it louder and way cleaner or, or way vibier than you, than you could do because you're so close to the album. You don't actually know what it needs at that point to make it louder. I have 15 different ways to make it louder. <laughs> um, you know, and it's like, it's, 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 and not one and every single one of not even 15 different, I have 15 different ways before I get to plugins. And then the plugin is just one of those ways. <laughs> so, so then I've got a thousand different choices in plugins and you know, every, every, every plugin sounds the same to me. Every EQ plugin sounds the same to me. Every compressor plugin sounds the same to me. The only thing that sounds different is limiters. <laughs> every single limiter plugin sounds different because limiters are, are doing, are distorting so much. That's what a limiter does is distort. So um, which limiter to use? Like I go between four different limiters very often and and each one of them sounds so different to my ears, like so different. 
And once you get in the room and you're realizing, wow, okay, you're, I'm playing you four different versions of it. You're like, I can't choose because they all sound good. So a master engineer is going to decide this one is good for this project. Um, it's a completely subjective decision, but, but, but more objective than you because you're, because you're, you're, you're so close to it. If you mixed it or recorded it or, or, or have anything to do with the album, you're, you're, you're so sub subjective that you can't decide what's good for it in mastering stage. Mastering's always been the objective ear as far as objectives can go, it's, which is not too far. But, um, and, and we here at Lacquer Channel are a last of our kind. We're a rare breed. And there's, I have all my compadres across the world who are like us, but we're the, we're the ones that only do mastering. Like, I don't know how to mix or record. And <laughs> neither does Phil. And neither does George. I mean, George knows to agree, but because he did it when he was younger. But, but, like, 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 we're really the. Sorry about that. We're really the the last of our breed. That 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 all we can do is mastering. That the new mastering engineer can't do that anymore. They have to know how to mix. They have to know how to record because they can't make a living doing just this. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Um, so when you're talking about hiring mastering, you're hiring a guy who all he knows is mastering. All he knows is what's best for your project yeah. or, or completely, totally wrong. But if they're totally wrong then they can do it another way. Mm -hmm. So are there any cases where you would say mastering isn't necessary? Yeah. Um, um, if, uh, well, let me think about this for a second. Um, mastering isn't. Mastering is necessary in the sense that um, if you send it to a mastering engineer and they say they don't need to do anything to it, <laughs> um, and they're maybe they come to that determination within like ten minutes, then you don't. They're like, "Here, I'm sending you this back. It doesn't need anything to do here," which is rare. Yeah. Um, you know what? Mastering isn't necessary if perhaps it's just a small release. You know, not a lot of people are going to listen to it, and you're happy with it, and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't care that it sounds good on all systems. You don't care that it's like whatever. It's like. Um, I was listening to Ty Siegel's album. There's one of his albums. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Do you know about DR levels? DR levels? No. Yeah, like dynamic range levels. Oh, yeah, so yeah, like yeah, yeah. Okay. Audio, yeah. What audio files you use. So this, so like, like generally, like, like the average DR level is around five or six. Yep. Um, a super loud, super, super, super loud album is three. This, this album is zero. <laughs> so it's like the, 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 and it's just him and a guitar. And the and the meters are pinned yeah. the entire album. So I guess it's w the choice he made, like to like creatively. It's unlistenable, but whatever, because <laughs> um, it's just a guitar and voice, and it's louder than anything you ever owned. Yeah. So, um, but maybe that's un that's un mastering is unnecessary if it's un unmasterable. If it's so loud that it can't be mastered, then that's unnecessary. Fair enough. But I mean, like I said, it's not unnecessary because. There's not an album out there that's been successful. Like I, what I said recently to somebody, I said, top 1,000 albums right now. That's a lot of albums. So it's top 1,000 singles right now. Yep. None of them are unmastered. So what do they know that you don't? That's, that's a very good argument. Or what do you know that they don't more appropriately? Yeah. So yeah, like top 1,000. So um, there's, it's just a lot of people will be like, yeah, I, I don't believe in mastering. I mix my stuff so it doesn't need to be mastered. Well, great for you. Why does no one else do that? <laughs> like, why are you so great at what you do uh, that 
that Jeff Emmerich is not that that you know that, that like all these other guys are not like it's just yeah they kind of understand yeah so. definitely so what's your mindset then when you go into a new project where do you start what sort of things are you listening for at this stage twenty years into it I'm just I'm just going on like muscle memory in my brain so I'm like I put it on and I listen to it all the way through and then I kind of have an idea what I want to do by the end of that so I'm listening for um, overall how the songs, if it's an album, how the songs all interact with each other, the vibe, how it was recorded. Like I'm trying to pick that up. Like, is it all digital recording? Is there analog there? Does it have saturation? Does it have distortion? Um, I'm listening for like, what is the vibe? What do I want to go for? And because I have such a great analog arsenal, I'm deciding, do I want to go tubes? Do I want to go transformers? Do I want to go digital outboard? Do I want to go like my Dolby Spectral or do I want to go passive with my SPL, which is so clean, like, or my GML? Like, do I want to use my Burl converter, or do I want, which is kind of vibey, or do I want to use my DCS, which is really audiophile? So I'm, I'm, I'm listening for this. I want to hear the songs at first, but I'm also like, like the subconsciously, I'm trying, I'm already making those decisions of what I want to do with it. Yeah, that's cool. And what does a typical mastering chain consist of for you? Uh, just a, a EQ, a compressor, and then a limiter. A, and the limiter is usually digital, although I do have an analog limiter. That's cool. That's I mean, that's it. Very simple. And then, like ninety-nine percent of all mastering jobs is, is is an EQ, a compressor, and a limiter. Nothing else. Yeah. And so you had mentioned earlier that it can generally take. I mean, it can sometimes take you up to four hours to to master an entire album. Minimum uh, four. Minimum for max eight usually. Okay, cool. And how do you know when you're done mastering a song? What what kind of vibe are you getting off of that? See, that's interesting because as you get more experience with it, you just know. You're not you don't you don't question it. You know. You don't second guess yourself anymore. When you're younger, you don't know when you're done. You just stop at some point. You keep second guessing yourself. You're like, okay, this is I think this is done. And you listen to it again. So I'll know when I'm done. If I'm doing an analog process, I'll know when I'm done, and then I'll I'll just I'll just know it, and then I'll commit it, and then when all the songs are there, I'll give them a listen again, and then make uh, subtle adjustments in the box. Like, okay, this one has a little too much bass compared to everyone else, so I'll just adjust that bass a little bit. Yeah, that's cool. So as you get more experience, you just know it's just it's just you just have the confidence to do it. When you're less experienced, you second guess a lot, and you just uh, agree to stop at some point. Mm-hmm. And as you get more experience, the revisions get less and less too. And maybe to tie into some of what you just said, was there a certain point in your career where you kind of just felt like, oh, I can, I can make really good masters all of a sudden. Like, yeah. <laughs> do you know, do you know when I knew I was good? When's um, that? When I, uh, I, I, I actually had a long talk with Phil about this. I, I started just like feeling like I was cheating the client. I'm like, I'm like, oh man, I just mastered this album. It took me like four hours and I didn't put any effort into it. It's like, <laughs> I feel like I'm like, and I've talked to Phil about it. I'm like, I feel like I'm like cheating the client. It's like, 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 I'm like, I'm like, I'm not, it's taking, I'm not putting any, any effort or any work into this. And he's like, no, just the opposite. He's like, this is you being experienced. This is what you're experiencing. You're experiencing that you now have the confidence and experience, and this is what they're hiring you for. It's like, it's like there's this great parable that I've heard before in, in business podcasts, and it's like about the Nike Swish. You know about this one? No, I'm not sure if I know this. And one. it's like Nike spent like like 
hundreds of thousand dollars for an agency to invent a new logo for them. And, they and, the swoosh. and, and no, they didn't, they yeah. got nothing. It was like, they hated everything. And then, so they're like, they don't know what to do. So they hired this guy who's really expensive, but he's not an agency. He's just a single guy. And they, and he's like, okay, I just need to come in the office and talk to you guys first. So he did. And he's like, he's like a hundred grand, just this one guy, whatever he is. And came into the office and he's asking them a bunch of questions. And it was like a 20 minute meeting. And then he's like, okay, pulls out a notebook, draws something. He draws the Nike swoosh and he shows them. He's like, there's your logo. And they're like, this is amazing. This is great. It's exactly what we want. <laughs> and then one of the guys popped up. He's like, uh, okay. So you just did this in this meeting. It was 20 minutes. And, uh, um, why are we paying a hundred grand for that? He's like, actually it was 30 years plus 20 minutes. <laughs> and I love that. And they were all like, oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's what it is. You know, you're, you're hiring at this point in my career, you're not hiring for my gear. You're not hiring you for the studio. You're hiring me for my experience. Nothing else. I love that. That's a great, um, great analogy. Yeah. At this point, 10 years ago, you were hiring me for the gear and the, the studio and everything else. Yeah. Now you're just hiring me for my experience. doesn't matter how I master your album. Um, it just matter how it, it just matters how it sounds. That's, that's, that's great. Is there anything you, that you like to do with mastering that other people might think you're a little crazy for doing or any strange techniques or anything like that? I think I'm actually a traditionalist and I think I get offended when people aren't traditionalists, even though that's the biggest <laughs> people aren't like, I'll go in with Phil and he'll like, yeah, I'm using this compressor this way, this, this multiband compressor. I'm like, I'm like, that's stupid. I go, don't do that. I go like, that's, that's not mastering. That's like, you're doing way too much. And like, you're, and I'm like, but I mean, and then I'll be like, wait a minute, maybe I should try this out and do this. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh yeah, this works. And I get, get very influenced that way. I'm really a traditionalist. The only thing is my Dolby, uh, Dolby Spectral 740. I learned to use that from George. Um, there's not a lot of mastering studios that have it. And the ones that do, do not talk about it. It's like the secret mastering tool. Um, and they come up so rarely on eBay, you know, and it's like, um, and most people have no idea like how cool it is. And there's no plugin that does anything like it. And I kind of just gave it away right now, but, um, <laughs> the, the but stock price is going to go way up. Yeah. Well, like the problem is they're, 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 when they, they are for sale, they're never that expensive really. It's just cause people don't know what to do with it. People don't know how to use it. It's very difficult device to learn. Got it. Um, but it basically takes your, your spectral, like your frequency, spectrum mm -hmm. from minus 40 to minus 60 db and then eqs it in that range and brings it out from that range so everything really quiet spectrally in your mix hmm. it can bring it out it's really cool and there's nothing like it out there so that's kind of my one of my like tricks that's cool whatever. and I, I don't use it all the time because it brings the noise out too yeah because your noise is down at that level but um other than that, I'm just a vibey person. Like I just listen to, I turn the knobs until it sounds right. But I, I tend to like, I'm more old school in the fact that if I see someone using like two dBs of EQ, I'm like, pshaw, like what's your, you don't know how to master. <laughs> like you're, that's, I, so I'll use one dB, even though that's relative, right? Cause yep. that's only relative to what, what kind of gain you're getting into the equalizer. But I generally feel weird if I use more than one dB of EQ. Hmm. So, 
I try to use multiple EQs at one dB, and then that combination sort of, um, so a half dB or one dB. Although my Sontek, Sontek and Neve are both, they don't do halves, I don't think. They just do ones. Got it. Well, speaking of EQ, I mean, one thing that I find I read a lot online about mastering is that some people will say mastering is all about making really broad EQ moves, like boosts and cuts and stuff like that. Well, others will say that it's a lot, it's about making multiple super tight surgical moves. Right. Is What's your approach? Is, is there one that's better than the other? Yeah. I think at one point I would say there's, there's, there's no one way, yeah. but uh, of course there is no one way, but, but I think definitely engineers, there's, there's like the, the Bobcat style surgical engineer. And then there's the, the Doug Sachs, like rest in peace, like broad strokes guy. I'm more of the broad strokes guy. I like, I like wide cues, except for kick drums and stuff like that. Like you can't, can't really do a, a, a like a, a, a broad, a broad or a shelving EQ won't really boost up a kick drum. Um, but for pretty much everything else, like why, like I can, I can probably use like all shelving EQs. I was looking at that new tube tech device and I'm like, hmm, where can I find 5,000 to get this? <laughs> Cause it's just, it's just broad. It's just shelving EQs. My, my SPL passive EQ is mostly shelving EQs. So it's like, like, um, um, yeah, broader, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Cool. Like, I love that. Um, all, the Poltec style of EQing is extremely broad. Yep. So uh, I'm I I love that thing. I think like um, people have been typically doing broader, like Doug Sachs Mastering Lab and Bernie Grunman Studios and uh, uh, that sort of um, California California style is very very broad. Cool. What are some of the biggest problems that you see in the projects that you master? Are they often mixing problems, or do you think that they're yeah. more to do with how they were recording at the source? Hands down, number one problem, and this always shoots me in the foot because some engineers like won't use me because of this. Although I feel like I've I've really conquered this problem if I get a mix this way, but it's mixes that are as loud as masters. Got and it. we get a lot of that. Like from a lot of top tier guys give us mixes that are super loud. So I've developed a whole process to deal with that. Um, but I'll also ask people, hey, is, there, is it possible to get a... a a mix without this much level. Um, usually they get offended by that. They're like, no, you what? You can't work with what I give you. I'm like, oh man, I totally can work with what I give you. Here's what you give me. No problem. I go, I'm just wondering if it's, if it's a mistake you sent me this. So yeah, we're getting this. A lot of mastering engineers won't talk about it, but if you do listen to interviews, a lot of mastering engineers will hint at that, that that's the number one problem is super loud mixes. So what do you recommend then for people who are submitting their tracks for mastering? Do you have like a specific submission requirement for headroom or anything like that? No, not, I don't care about headroom. Headroom's totally not important. Dynamic range is important. So I simply say one thing, your meters should move. If your meters aren't moving, then your view meters, if they're not moving, then it's, then it's probably too loud for mastering. Your meters shouldn't be pinned, you know, it should be like just lots of movement in the meters, you know, it's like dynamics. I want dynamics because dynamics gives me leeway to get rid of those dynamics or keep them. Um, if you get rid of your dynamics, there's not much I can do. I can't get them back, especially for vinyl these days. If you're submitting loud mixes with no dynamics for vinyl, your vinyl is not sounding as good as it could. And that is, that is a truth. Like 
Like lathes do not like lack node dynamics. They they were never made to handle that, and the cutting engineer has to reduce the level in order to handle it. Yeah. So in terms of low end, I know that that's something a lot of people really struggle with in the mixing stage, and they bring it to mastering, hope that, hoping that that's going to take care of it. Is there anything that you recommend with master, or with mixing engineers to do ahead of time to prepare it better for the mastering stage? Just make sure that your low end's in phase, um, probably mono, because uh, that'll sound better for vinyl and for di- 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 digital, mm-hmm. because so much di- digital is produced is played back in mono so you do want you do want the low end mono compatible um and controlled like compress the bass compress the low end like 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 controlled low end goes like listen 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 to hip-hop music listen to good (laughs) hip-hop music like all modern hip-hop and r&b because their bass is spot on all the time and it works on everything. Yeah. Listen to everything Pharrell's done. Listen to everything like Snoop Dogg. Listen to like, like, like just any like this, uh, this, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Pink Champagne guy. What's his name? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that guy. Sure. Um, his bass is awesome, you know? Listen to anything, anything like uh, Justin Timberlake's been involved with. It's just, it's just the bass is spot on. Yeah. Make your bass sound like that. Make it just, super super controlled and it'll sound good on anything it'll make my job easier for sure the easier my job is the better it is for everybody like like it's not like oh why should i make the mastering job guys easier no because your mix will sound better (laughs) if the job is easier for the mastering guy fair enough so i know another thing a lot of people talk about is that they'll do their mixes and they get it sounding great in their room and then they go to their car or another set of speakers and the mix just totally falls apart and doesn't translate yeah. at all. So obviously they come to the mastering engineer hoping that you can make it translate across other systems. So how do you ensure that your masters will translate accurately across other okay. speakers? So that's a, a two-tiered answer. So the first thing is like your mix should not sound good in all systems. It really, it should sound only good on the, on the one you're mixing in. The problem is people should be educating their clients that way too, saying, this sounds good in here. It's not necessarily going to sound good anywhere else until until mastering. The mastering engineer's job is to make sure it sounds good everywhere else. How the mastering engineer does that is by knowing their room really, really, really well and how it translates to the outside world. So in the beginning, when you first get your speakers, you do a bunch of masters, then you play it on everything you can. And then you get to learn it. So then you know your system. So I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to bring it to the car to hear how it sounds because I know how my room sounds and I know how it'll translate. And my speakers, mm-hmm. which are built for the studio, translate really well. Other studios have like um, really, really expensive audiophile speakers and they may not necessarily translate as well. Um, but again, if they if they if they know the room really really well, then then it's the same effect. So they know what to do for it. But my speakers, because they were designed for the studio, they we designed them in a way that this should these are supposed to translate. They're not supposed to sweeten anything up. They're supposed to just sound good in everything. That's I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of people just don't spend the time trying to learn how their speakers work in relation to other speakers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And there's always a learning curve. If you get new speakers, it takes it takes a couple of years to you know, really <laughs> till you're really confident to not have to list, listen to it elsewhere. Yeah, just listening to a lot of music on there. 
with all of the major streaming services constantly changing their compression algorithms and, and all that stuff, how has that affected your process? Do you find that you're having to make multiple versions of masters in order to optimize the sound for each? Or do you kind of have a standard level that you shoot for that seems to work well across others or all those platforms? Um, okay. So again, like, like my answer is going to be really like arrogant and like, this is the only <laughs> answer like that there is like, you're fucked. Like you're, we're all fucked. Like, it's like, it's like, it's like, because of what you just said there, it's like, you can't do anything. Like there's nothing you can actually do because, because you may go into Spotify and they may change their, their target levels. Like they'll change their target levels at a whim. They'll change their compression algorithm, everything you just said there. So you have no control over this. You can, I've got a plugin that allows me to listen to all the different formats, but when they change it, there's nothing you can do about that. So just make it sound as best as you can for CD and then just hope it translates because you can't actually deliver individually to the, to the different streaming services anyway. Mm -hmm. the, the same, you have, to deliver the, you have to deliver the same file for all of them. So just try to avoid overs, try to avoid intersample modulation um, and distortion, then it's probably going to be okay. But, but cause some people are saying, Oh, Spotify changed their target levels to like minus 14 LUFS or whatever. So you have to master quietly now. It's like, no, you don't because everyone will reject your master. If you make it quiet, <laughs> just do what you do, make it sound great. And then just let the, let everyone, let everyone else do their jobs as far as the aggregators go in the streaming services and hope they'll make it sound as good as possible. But keep in mind, most people are listening to like free Spotify and free Spotify is, is worse bitrate than the first generation iPod, which everyone hated. It's 90, <laughs> 90, 92 kilobits. It's terrible. So who cares? It's just going to sound awful anyways. But unfortunately, people's brains are being trained to hear this lower volume, like, I mean, lower quality. Like, like if I put you in a room and, and, and like made you just listen, watch nothing but VHS after a while, you're going to be like, this looks great. Your brain's just going <laughs> to, your brain just will just accept that quality. And then you'll, I'll put you in front of a, an HD system and you'll be like, holy crap. Like, this is amazing. Um, you know, audio is less noticeable than that. But if I, I, you listen to nothing but Spotify free and then put on a CD like something that came out in the eighties, you'd be like, wow, this is so high resolution. No, I, I, like, I didn't know it could sound this good. It's just, yeah, you, you can't do any, <laughs> you can't really do anything different at this point. You can listen to all the different versions, but what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Like just make it sound as good as possible. And then, and then hopefully the world will go towards like 1980s quality at some point, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll at least get back up to cassette. You know, like, <laughs> because these streaming services, most of them don't sound that great. You know, if you pay for it, obviously title uncompressed sounds amazing, mm -hmm. but, but not everyone's going to do that. Like Apple and Spotify, if you pay for it and you put it on the highest settings, it's, it's passable. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, I know we got to start to wrap up because you got a client coming in. So uh, I just wanted to ask, how can people follow you online if they want to learn more about you or work with you? Real easy. Just Lacquer Channel, L-A-C-Q-U-E-R-C-H-A-N-N-E-L is most of our our online things. You can find us, uh, the, 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 the Twitters and the Facebooks. Is, and we love, like, we post stuff. We have a social media person. So we post tons of stuff about our clients. 
Um, I have a blog. I haven't updated in a long time, but there's a lot of good information on there, like blog.lackerchannel.com. I'm, we're working on a new one, like, um, and hopefully I'll start posting again because I love writing about stuff. Um, I write for professional sound every once in a while. So there's, there's articles out there about that. Um, and I love just engaging. Like I love talking about mastering. So hit me up on Facebook and I'll just, I'll talk your ear off about mastering. Mastering is the only thing I know how to do at this point in my life. And, and it's the only <laughs> thing I'm good at. I don't even, my kids are grown up, so I don't even have like kid stuff anymore. So all, all I care about, all I talk about is mastering. So it's all <laughs> and, and you did the same thing back in the day, right? You reached out to other mastering engineers and learned from exactly. them. So it, it, you're paying it forward. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. And uh, one last thing, any cool projects that you're working on now that you're excited about? I can only really talk about the stuff that, that's that's coming out or come out. So sure. the new Terra Lightfoot is super brilliant. Uh, the new Birthday Massacre is really awesome. Um, I did a remaster for the Nils, which is like a 90s band, 80s, 90s. The Rip Nancys, they're super great. Hot Kid and there's so much out there that's great. Like, like I mean, I, I do the the last Sonic Titan album, which is amazing. Um, I, you know, I do like 200 albums a year, so so it's hard to choose. And <laughs> I'm lucky I work on such amazing music. And when I do, I I become such a fan. Like I love my job and I love what I do and I love mastering. I love 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 it. It's it's it's, and I know I'll never be like a New Yorker, California mastering engineer. I'll never get that. I mean, I did a bunch of live tracks for the national like last month, which is amazing. That's cool. Um, and, but I'll never get those high profile U S jobs. Um, I don't even get some of the high profile Canadian jobs. And in the end, as long as I'm busy, as long as I'm working on great music, it doesn't matter. And it's just being in Toronto. It's just the way it'll probably always be. Cause it'll always be New York and LA mastering studios and people yeah. will always just want to do that. So, and I, and I get that and I, I support it to some degree too. If you love I've, what you're doing, that's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on here. I think you gave us a lot of really cool tips and, and awesome. uh, great advice. So thanks, thanks so much. much. Yeah, man. Take care. Talk soon. Take care. Bye. So that was my chat with Noah Mintz. I learned a ton from that, and I hope you did too. I think he shared a lot of really great advice. I love the story about the Nike swoosh thing. I think that there's so many of us that really undervalue ourselves and and don't really value the experience and expertise that we have. And I think that that story perfectly encapsulates that so that you can feel a little bit more comfortable and confident asking for what you're worth. I also love that he's such a minimalist when it comes to mastering, because these days it's so easy to get carried away and add a ton of plugins to your mix or to your masters, and uh, I think the fact that somebody has made a living making very minor changes using very minimal equipment, I think that that says something about the art of mastering and a true mastering engineer. So definitely make sure to check Noah out online, check out Lacquer Channel. And if this is your first time hearing about MasterYourMix.com, please visit the website. At the top of the page, there's a link to download your free copy of the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. That's a guide to help you with using EQ and compression in your mixes so that you can get better results faster. So make sure to check that out. And when you sign up for it, you'll immediately be added to my mailing list. And every week I send out new videos, tips, and tutorials to help you improve your mixes. So make sure to check that out. And if you like what you heard in this episode, please make sure to subscribe to this on iTunes and leave a rating and review. That helps us get exposed to more people and uh, really helps keep this podcast going. So thank you so much for listening and I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. 
To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.